Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, hello. Hello, J.D. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's been, I don't know, it feels like it's been a little bit of a week, uh, you know, but that'll happen. I suppose a, uh, a funny thing happened to me the other day that I thought you might get a kick out of. I, uh, if you'd like to hear about it, I, I would love to hear about it. I'm, I'm, I'm I, I was struck dumb with anticipation. <laughs> Something happened to me the other day that I uh, that 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 reminded me Ed, of our place in the universe, and it was good for me, I think, to be reminded of our place in the universe. Uh, and it was kind of funny. If you want to hear about it, please, please tell me, JD. <laughs> so I had uh, I had a couple of friends over and uh, two friends over the other night just to uh, you know have a drink and. Um, oh, and you told ha- me about you told me that this was going to happen. You you that I was you having friends over. That you were having friends over, and I I was deeply curious about what it's like to have friends. Friends, that you that's could not have true. Over. Actually, that, that's you say that, but that's not true because you and um, Mrs. Condon are great entertainers and frequently entertaining. You are frequently entertaining. This is false. This is false on its face. I the last time we had more than three people in our house at a time was the was our we used to do Epiphany parties, annual Epiphany parties, which were sort of combination late Christmas parties because mm-hmm. we tend to go away for Christmas, um, and also give nothing up for new year's because that's a silly thing mm-hmm. um party and so we would we would like to have people over in numbers on on epiphany and that was sort of right and we had one the last one we had was 2020 and uh we've not had more than three people in our house at a time since then i don't think and but, but three i mean you're you're regularly having dinner guests and people over for cocktails and stuff i'm i'm aware of that and you're 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 very good entertainer so you're not going to get one by me on that you have uh, you have friends over, but I and I also have friends over. Although we, you know, obviously host people less often now than we did um, in the before times, I guess. But anyway, I had some friends over the other day. You know, we just had a little fire in the backyard and had some drinks, and it was just two guys. And uh, and so one of one of the other guys who was there also has a podcast. He's also a person in the universe of podcasting and uh and so one of the guys who's there also has a podcast and the other guy doesn't and the other guy the third guy uh we'll call him uh bill i guess if we reference him again anyway bill says to me and the other podcast guy uh you know that he's been he'd been listening to our podcast and that he'd listened to recent episodes of both of our podcasts on that very day the day that he came over and so he says to the other guy the friend of mine who is there we'll call him mike bill says to mike you know man your most recent episode of the podcast, the things that you were talking about, it was so powerful and I was so touched and the way that you just um, unpacked the way that God had been working in your life was so unbelievably extraordinary and it meant a lot to me and my wife and thank you for it. And, you know, the guy was like, wow, yeah, thanks. That really means a lot. I really appreciate it. And then he uh, looked at me and he said, and yeah, I really liked it when you and Ed played that game about baby things last week and i just i laughed because i was i was reminded of our place in the universe very acutely and in a, in a in a funny way that well i mean it just goes to when we we, we strive to entertain i'd like to think that we reward <laughs> the the hours investment of attention uh that that people that people I would give like us to think that week. we do and i think it's good you know i mean i think we have our we have our moments but i was just i was glad to be uh 
I, lest I ever get, um, you know, too high an opinion of myself, I, w- I was glad to, uh, to be reminded of the, of the good and important and, and uh, sort of categorically formational work that people do that, um, for the gospel that is, uh, that is of, a, of a high, high and important value. I'm always amazed that people listen to the podcast. Refreshingly, a few people that I encounter in, in real life do. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm always amazed that there are people out there who do. I think it's great. No, I mean, obviously, we have great listeners. And uh, Mrs. Flynn is often amazed that people listen to the podcast, too. At least that's what she tells me. But she slips up. So Mrs. Flynn plays this game, um, you know, again, to lest I get too big for my britches. Mrs. Flynn pay, plays this game of, like, utter amazement that people listen to the podcast and... Um, you know, she doesn't have time. She doesn't listen to the podcast and, and this kind of thing. But then every so often she'll slip and we'll be talking about something and she'll be like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what you were saying to Ed last week. Da, 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 da. And I'll be like, I gotcha. You listen to the show. Oh, that that's impressive. My my wife does not, has <laughs> never, wouldn't know how if she had to listen to the show. Well, that could be if you make her a playlist, you know, as you well know, you guys are expecting a baby and the baby is coming any day now. So if you make her a playlist, one thing you could do is just stitch together some of our greatest moments from the show. And then she could have that playlist of kind of uh, us there, you know, and she could be listening to us while she has the baby. I think that would be very powerful for all three of us, don't you? I, I think it would be a very, very unfortunate and unfortunately on-the-nose metaphor for much <laughs> of my marriage if while my child is being born, the backdrop was you and I having a separate conversation about work. <laughs> oh, no. I, I don't know that that's a wise idea. <laughs> I just think, you know, we play a lot of fun games and that might keep her laugh. I don't know if it's important for a woman to be laughing during labor. That seems like something. So it might, you know, keep it her- seems like a, a frivolous. I mean, this is what I've been given. Notice. It's, a, it's a it's a jolly occasion that, um, you know, there's there's wine and tapas and, you know, I don't like conversation that's... and witty badinage. I, I, I mean, I'm certainly things. going prepared with jokes. I'm assuming that that's what's required of me. If popular culture has taught me anything, my job is to make sort of bad jokes to the medical team during delivery. So that's well, what I'm that's going that's what sitcoms for. would have you believe. What I do hope you bring it is I hope you make um, a really great – I hope you bring a thermos uh, full of a great cocktail that you can um, pour for Mrs. Condon after she's had the baby. Because that seems like it would be a very kind thing if you, you know, pour her a cocktail and give her the gift, you know, the sort of gift that you've gotten her and – and uh you know the what the the gift there's wait what well i mean she's about to have a baby i mean you're going to give her some sort of a gift is that a thing is, i think i mean i mean it I, seems don't get me wrong me. i was going to bring she, a nice bottle of wine and a nice bottle of champagne and yeah, you know but a, i mean don't you want to give a cooler her... full of stuff so that she didn't have to touch hospital food but, but it I, would seem to me i mean not sort of like oh you you had our baby here's a shiny bobble but at the same time it would seem to me that it would be an, a beautiful and appropriate occasion to give your wife a, um, a beautiful piece of jewelry and a necklace, um, which in some way might convey the unity not only of the two of you, but of your family. I would, I would think that would be something that people would do and, and would be a beautiful thing to do. Oh, now I have to do that. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, right. you've got time. You have time. Do I? I don't know. I mean, at we'll any go moment down to this the mall. I mean, after we do the show, go down to the go mall. Go down to the mall. Yeah, the go down mall, to the mall. Go down the to mall the mall near me is not a place where one shops for jewelry. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Well, go uh, to the go to. Uh, I know you, Ed, well enough. You have you have a tailor. You have a tobacco guy. You have a watch guy. You've got to have a jeweler. I I do actually, but like my tailor, he's in London. Oh, well, um, you have to get an Ameri- a stateside jeweler. Oh. Uh, 
I, and if you, know, you do, you, look, it, having your own, having a jeweler is a very, very good thing. And I strongly recommend, I haven't been able, I have not yet formed I'll a relationship. I'll go to my guy. I'll, I have not yet formed a meaningful relationship with a jeweler in Washington, D.C. But I, I mean, my, my jeweler in London was a wonderful guy. I could go to him as I did twice a year, sometimes three times a year and say, here's the budget. What do you got? And we'd talk about it. And it got to the point where he, he knew what I was, you know, not what I was looking for, but he understood, he came to understand my wife's preferences yeah, yeah, with yeah, regard yeah. to jewelry very well and would, you know, be able to make excellent recommendations. And it was a really nice place that had been there for a very, very long time. They didn't take credit cards, which I really appreciated. Everything was cash or personal check. There was oh, no, no technology whatsoever involved huh. in the transaction. Hmm. Um, and you had to build up sort of credibility with them before they'd take your checks past a certain yeah, amount. Sure. So like well, they had you know, to know you're good yeah. for it, but you know, yeah, so yeah. They, they were rewarded repeat customers that way. I, you know, it was, I, I, I missed that jeweler. What we could talk um, about right now is the fact that cash is a technology and a significant one, but we're not going to go down that road. Instead, I'll tell you, I got a guy, uh, you know, not that I, um, buy very fancy jewelries or jewelry very often, but there's a guy kind of in the little downtown near my neighborhood who is a Mormon guy and he has this little jewelry shop and he's got like a, I feel like we understand each other in a certain way because we're, he's devoutly Mormon. And while I am not, and do not share um, his belief. You are not known for being devoutly Mormon. No, (laughs) no, I'm not known for being devoutly Mormon. And while I don't share his belief in the many tenets of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in, in any way, shape or form, um, I appreciate his religiosity as he appreciates mine. And therefore we have, you know, I've enjoyed talking with him as I picked out a present for the missus on various occasions, including the birth of our children, which is a time when husbands generally uh, have some sort of a present for their wife. Why is there nothing in literature about this stuff? Right. The, I'm how, telling you now. Like there, everything that is written for men who whose wives are about to give birth to their first child is full of utterly useless biological trivia. Well, because it should come from your heart. This gift is not. This should come from your heart. I mean, if you if you don't want, I mean, I would say if you don't want to give her a gift, don't be ridiculous. Nothing. No, no one wants a gift that comes from the heart. You know, what do you think I can make her a card out of construction paper? This is ridiculous. Of course, I think she would love it. And I think she would love it if you made her a a card out of construction paper. In fact, I think what I think you should do is after this show, which we're coming eerily close to because we're talking a lot about this. What I think you should do is um, is sit down. With a piece of paper and a pen, I know you have nice pens. That's kind of a thing that you have. Sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and write for your wife. I think it would be a time to write a very sort of beautiful letter expressing, you know, some reflections on the time together that the two of you have had before the arrival of the child. And then um, some of your hopes and, and dreams and some of the things that you most appreciate about her and her beauty now at this time as you move forward in this new horizon in your family life. I think it would be, and I think if you added some construction paper to that, I think she would love the whole thing. I I I used to write long and heartfelt letters to my wife, especially when we were courting. I oh, would, then it would be all the more beautiful, wouldn't it? If you yeah, but the problem is after in excess of thirteen years of marriage now, um, she's she's gotten to the point where if I give her a card for her birthday saying put anything vaguely personal that isn't overtly sarcastic or borderline crass as a joke, then she just sort of scoffs at me and accuses me of being soppy or whatever, you know. Sure, but this I, is a moment. If there's ever a moment for sentiment, it's the birth of your. Okay, let's talk about work, huh? What I want to talk about, Ed, is not something that we have written about, but something that I find sort of interesting and I think worth sort of noting. There is a bill in Congress right now that is, um, uh, I suppose you probably know better than I, but I suppose 
scheduled or to be scheduled for a vote of the House of Representatives called the Women's Health Protection Act of 2021. And it's a bill that is designed to sort of expand in significant ways uh, federal legal protections for abortion. And uh, I want to talk about the bill, uh, not on the face of the bill, which I think it is well established that you and I would think that a law establishing federal legal protections for abortion runs contrary to the teaching of the church um, and uh, would therefore be unjust. Um, But I wanted to sort of talk about the way that the church and various churchmen are approaching the bill, because I think there are a couple of interesting things kind of going on there. Um, Is that all right with you? Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I, yeah, I think we should talk about it. I, I I would note as an opening gambit that this is not unexpected. This was a, a campaign pledge of the of Joe Biden that uh-huh. um, seeing legislation for the entrenchment and expansion of abortion access at the federal level was um, was an oft-repeated promise of his while he was stumping right. for election. Yeah, that's right. And so now the um, the New York Times reported today that the House of Representatives is planning to schedule a vote on the bill, um, again, which would eff- effectively enshrine in federal law legal protections for abortion, so that state laws would not be able to prohibit legal protection for abortion, so that if Roe versus Wade were overturned, a federal law protecting uh, abortion would be on the on the books, as it were, you know, it would be a, a matter of positive legislation rather than a sort of um, presumptive or uh, declared constitutional right. So it would be a different... It would be a different kind of thing, and the House of Representatives has said that they're going to uh, to schedule a vote on on the bill. Um, but what's really interesting about that is that um, the the bill is probably may might well and probably would pass the House of Representatives, but um, is not right now positioned to become a law. Which is to say that it's not a, the kind of bill that has any likelihood of passing the Senate. Um, it would need uh, probably sixty votes to get through the Senate because of the filibuster and the likelihood of getting sixty. Uh, votes on a bill like that um, is not there. I mean, even pro even pro choice Republicans like Susan Collins, Senator Susan Collins from Maine, have said, "I wouldn't vote for this bill." So, the House of Representatives, if they schedule a vote on the thing, is going to pass it, and then the Senate is not going to pass it if they take it up for a vote at all. Which means that when the House does this, it's kind of a symbolic thing, right? I mean, it's kind of it's not a resol- symbolic in the sense of being like just a resolution, but on the other hand, it is. Um, putting a ball in motion that is never going to get to the goal or is not positioned to get to the goal. Mm, I have mixed feelings about this. Um, on, on the one hand, you're absolutely right that there's a certain performative aspect to this. Um, and pretty much much of our federal legislature is performative at this point. It's not actually concerned with the passing of laws. Um, it's concerned primarily with the levying of taxes and the raising of the debt ceiling and everything else is left to executive overreach. Uh, so I agree with you that this is, in a sense, performative. This this particular bill is not going to be enacted into law. It would certainly fail at the level of the Senate. Um, but I, I don't know that I think this is entirely a gesture, or certainly if it's a gesture, it's not a it's not a senseless gesture or a hollow gesture, because uh, you know every every horrific thing in law begins as an impossible idea. Until mm-hmm. one day it stops being funny and it's happened. Um, this is something that has happened over and over again. That you know, th- today's hysterically impossible idea is tomorrow's settled reality and judicial precedent. Um, so I don't know that I. I, I think um, constantly banging the drum for something that hasn't isn't going to happen today doesn't mean it won't happen tomorrow. I mean, there was a time at which uh, there were similar dynamics at play in legislatures around the world for the recognition of same-sex marriage. And at the time, that was described as 
comical and this is never going to pass and you know this is performative and why call for something that there's no way is ever going to and you know we've we have it now um so i i don't know that i agree that just because something is um is vanishingly unlikely to happen uh, on this attempt every attempt doesn't bring it a little bit closer and while while the country is becoming um at least so the polling would tell us while the country is becoming rather more centrist on the issue of abortion which is to say um while the the majority of people in this country announce themselves to be quote-unquote pro-choice um, and in favor of some kind of legal access to abortion, support for the kind of abortion rights proposed in this legislation is already a minority concern and certainly getting more of a minority concern that the general opinion and the trending opinion among self-identified pro-abortion people is for there to be limits on abortion for the full scope of Roe v. Wade not to be um, taken as a as a good idea, um, even amongst, for example, self-identified Democrats and pro-choice voters in, for example, the state of New York um, are not on board with and would consider extreme uh, the New York abortion law that was signed into law by Andrew Cuomo uh, just over, I think it's a year and a half ago now. Um, so while it's fair to say that the country is itself becoming less absolutely pro-abortion, um, the the legislative process in this country and the political debate is not. It's going in the other direction, and I think there is a I think there is a real impetus behind all of this that as you're seeing things like, for example, the Texas heartbeat bill, which we discussed a, a few weeks ago, coming up, you see a sort of counter reaction that every time there's a little bit of a pull for a limitation on abortion at the state level, there's a there's a sort of equal or even greater pull in the opposite direction. And so you have this sort of legislative tug of war to move the ribbon in the middle of this debate one way or another. And, and I think it's important to remember that because, you know, debate, debate does change minds, not necessarily absolutely. I don't know that public debate gets many, if anyone, to go from saying, well, I was absolutely against abortion and now I'm now I'm actually in favor of it, or I, I was absolutely committed to abortion and now I'm not. I don't know that po- political debate yields that kind of um, polar reversal in people, at least in any measurable or meaningful way. But it does, um, it, it does inform, informed public debate does change minds and it does move people along the spectrum. I mean, there was a Rasmussen poll a couple of, not many years ago, um, but it was before the presidential election that I was reading that, you know, at the time when lots of states were trying to pass these heartbeat bills, um, before the Texas went, there were, there were several other states that tried to put these heartbeat bills in place, um, and they weren't as constitutionally creative as the Texas one was, so they all, I think, got struck down in the end. But one of the things that was shown was that while the sort of standing start opinion in the general pro-abortion public is that um, banning abortion at the age of, uh, at, at, the, at six weeks of gestation was not a popular opinion, um, support for it grew. I think it almost doubled amongst self-identified pro-abortion voters when they discovered that a fetal heartbeat could be detected at that age. So there is a there is a way in which this sort of public debate can feel performative, especially when it's enacted by already overperformative legislatures. But I do think it it moves the needle in terms of the public consciousness. I th- I think you're right. I'm glad you say that, Ed, because I have been trying to figure out. So a, a bunch of bishops have, well, not a bunch of bishops, but a couple of bishops have issued like really strong statements um, 
in opposition to the Women's Health Protection Act. And, you know, there's an interesting question sort of about, like, why it would be that for a piece of legislation that is not going to pass, bishops would sort of come out swinging, as a, as a couple bishops have. And so I've just sort of been wondering about that. And I think you're right. You know, like, um, not engaging in the public debate, even on a piece of legislation that is not going to pass, I suppose would in certain ways be, look, you know, watching the pitch go by. I, I guess I guess in a certain way that, that resonates. But to be honest, I, I wonder if there's another reason. Um, you know, because there's a way in which one can become sort of frustrated with the um, – with a with a rhetorical debate that is not ultimately connected to reality, and there, there's a way in which um, a debate on this bill feels like that. The House of Representatives is going to schedule a vote on the bill. They will vote on the bill. The bill will probably pass the House of Representatives. It probably won't even get scheduled for a vote in the Senate. And you know that's that. So there there's a way in which one can say like, well, how much how much um, time and energy is worth, you know, really engaging and investing on a bill like that when it's not going to pass. And I think you're right um, to a large degree, Ed, that every single time debates like that come up, they do move the needle. I think probably marriage is a good example of that, that they kind of move the needle of acceptability. And then it becomes sort of a matter of, well, the House always passes this, so then all we have to do is pass it in the Senate. And so it gets closer and closer to becoming sort of a legislative reality. I, I think you're, I think you are right about that. And so there's a, probably a value of sort of like, you know, jumping in to oppose something which is problematic strenuously every time. I also think there's another way in which um, part of the reason why bishops might be sort of um, coming out swinging against the Women's Health Protection Act is precisely because um, it's not going to become a law. And so um, there's a way in which the um, support of Catholic legislators for a bill which enshrines abortion into federal law, uh, effectively for the legalization at the federal level of abortion, not from the court but from uh, the legislative process, um, an effort by Catholic legislators to do that when it's only symbolic when they're not go, sort of being arm twisted by their party because we need one more vote to get it passed or something like that. Um, but when it's purely and this is the line that I stand on, this is important to me, in a certain way may be all the more kind of a profound repudiation of Catholic teaching. And, and maybe that's why bishops are sort of jumping out on it, too. Well, I think there's a lot to that. Um, I would say that if you're if you're a Catholic politician who is taking a very public stand in favor of an incredibly extreme uh, measure in favor of abortion, even when you know it's not likely to pass in this iteration, it is in in many ways a profession of faith is what it is. It's not um, it, it's not a, a pragmatic calculation. It is uh, a, a gratuitous statement of intent uh, and of value. And I think that does need to be pushed back on. Um, and, and I mean, but also just as a matter of um, of prudence, that you know if you if you for example say that they just you know everyone who had any investment in the in the anti-abortion pro-life cause just sort of said well this is this is a waste of time we're not going to we're not going to engage with this let it go it passed the house it failed the senate and you know basically no one made any fuss about it what we are seeing and this is this goes back to what i was saying earlier about even as public opinion in the mean is trending away from the kind of abortion absolutism that this bill represents the legislative mentality and slate at the state and federal level for the Democrats, at least is trending very much in the opposite direction. I don't know, at least it's not been my impression that you can really track the Republican trend one way or another. I, you, you see some States coming up with heartbeat bills and stuff like that at the state level, but I haven't seen anything at the federal level that suggests a, a coherent or intentional methodology for 
any kind of federal legal engagement with the subject of abortion, but th- that's another subject. But anyway, so if you don't do this and you allow the the attempt to pass a bill like this to just become quote unquote performative and ignored, uh, and it's just part of the run of the mill thing, you're basically taking it off the table as an issue of concern. And so you allow that position to harden within the party. You ensure that the few remaining pro-life candidate, pro-life Democratic candidates who have existed and served in office like Dan Lipinski are chased out of the party. And there's certainly no prospect for a pro-life um, politician to make their way up through the Democratic ranks. You're hardened, You're allowing that position to harden. Um, it begins to calcify in that party so that one day, you know, as could happen, there could be a substantial partisan majority in both houses to allow a bill like this to pass. And at that point, it would be too late. There's, you know, it's just become, if you like, almost part of... Um, the the annual legislative process that the, a bill like this is proposed. And yeah, one that day makes the, sense. Yeah. The you know the opposition just isn't there for it anymore, and it just goes through on the nod, and everyone's going, "Wait, when did that happen?" That you know, I think it's important to to keep an eye on the statements of intent by by all sides. Um, and as for bishops, sort of choosing to engage with this in a particularly um, direct and strident way, I mean, I think they have to. Uh, we we often talk about. Um, bishops and their sometimes uh, reticence, shall we say, to deal at the individual level with um, Catholic politicians who are advancing policies like this. And the debate, to employ a euphemism that it occasions within the church and within the bishops' conference itself about what to do about politicians like Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden, who have uh, pro-abortion absolutist positions and explicitly and in terms repudiate and reject the church's teaching on basic moral issues in this way. Um, We might want to see bishops do more and with more clarity for individuals, but if we can't see the bishops getting together and speaking with maximum volume and clarity and unity on the abstract of a bill like this, then I mean, what hope is there for an application in individual circumstances? I mean, this, you know, it might feel a little bit like a waste of ink, to see numerous statements coming out of the USCCB condemning something which is so obviously out beyond the pale, not just of the church's teaching, but of natural law. Um, but on the other hand, if the USCCB doesn't have this kind of unity and public unity, then, you know, what is it going to premise its conversations on in Baltimore in a month and a half when they come to talk about the document on Eucharistic coherence? That, you know, this is in many ways setting the internal frame of reference for that debate to say, well, we are as a conference committed to opposing abortion, which is the preeminent social concern in the United States right now. Um, you know, the, the the national agenda politically is for things like this to be enacted. And we are united in opposition to that. And part of being united in opposition to that is, I would argue, that we carry these principles home and into effect in a pastoral manner in the way in which Pope Francis has called on us to do. Yeah, you know one one piece of this. What I, I'm glad you're saying this because one, it does make it does make sense, um, and I think I think that is the right kind of Catholic engagement. One piece of this that I've heard from heard of from people where I do think I, I think your experience kind of in a legislative office would be an interesting sort of caveat on it, um, or an inter- bring some interesting clarity. I have heard from some Catholics who have been solicited by either pro-life groups or by, I think there's a sort of a USCCB solicitation to email your congressperson about the bill, the Women Health Protection Act. So, you know, email your congressperson, then you can click and there's like a sort of fill in the blank email where the text is written and then you it, it tells you, helps you figure out who your congressperson is if you don't know, and then you just press send and it goes off. Um, and, you know, I've heard from some Catholics who say, um, we're being asked 
asked to uh, to send this email, which is effectively like sort of put ourselves out there um, on this issue. And our own bishops are not among those who have spoken out. Like you know, our you know the the conference is saying this is really really important, and yet it's there's a handful of bishops who have said very much about it at all. Um, I think Cordelioni, Nauman, Aquila. Um, a, a few others have put out statements, but it's not sort of like the preponderance of the bishops' conference, just a, f- a few bishops who are often saying things about pro-life legislation. And so I've heard from Catholics sort of saying, like, there's a frustration to feel like uh, the conference is asking us or the bishops are asking us to to contact our legislators when they themselves are not. And I'm, I, I think I understand that. I think that's reasonable. I think it stands sort of in the argument of, um, you know, if bishops are going to say this is something that we're going to speak out on, that they would speak out on it with unity and that many bishops would do so, including those who, you know, it would seem like, uh, especially including those who are sort of leading the charge to say, well, let's make as many overtures as po- of positivity as we can with the administration on, on places where we have common ground, healthcare, um, perhaps, or social service um, infrastructure and, and those kinds of things. I think you might have once said immigration, although it does not seem that the the administration is evidencing a commitment to um, uh, uh, the bishop's vision on immigration thus far. So I don't think you would necessarily include that. But, you know, those bishops who have been saying, let's sort of work, who have been on the side of the divide among the bishops, which I think we have to acknowledge there's a divide, who've been on the side of the divide of the bishops saying, well, let's sort of not take off the administration or push back on every single thing, um, because let's see where we can work with them. It would seem like, especially if those bishops were speaking out, it would be, you know, all the more clear the bishops as a whole perceive this is a, you know, a, a bridge too far, and also easier to elicit sort of the the outspokenness of Catholics, you know, emailing their congressman or whatever. But part of what I wonder at is like, do you think that, um, what is the value of that email your congressman thing? This is not just something that the conference does. I mean, this is like a, a regular thing that you see from nonprofits and advocacy groups of all the time, you know, click on this to let your congressman know or congresswoman know what you think about X, Y, or Z. Like having worked as a staffer in legislators offices, what is the, what is the perceived value of those to those organizations? I'm going to answer that question honestly. Um, and I want to make it clear that I'm speaking from my personal experience, having worked in politics and legislative offices in another country. So before anyone loses their mind and say, how dare you malign all the no, good England, work. England, where you're from. You, I know you've yeah. worked in the, the, uh, so, the Imperial um, Wizards. What is the, it called? The, the, Wizards, answer- the Wizards Council? Is that... <sighs> At first, I said Imperial Wizards Council, and then I remember that Imperial Wizard is the is the name of the guy who's the head of the clan, and I did not want to imply that you were connected to some sort of Imperial Wizardry. But I don't even know the the Wizards Cabinet is that what it's called? I think you're referring to the Mother of Parliaments, JD. But okay. yeah, the, um, the 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 Muggles Parliament that is indeed what it is. So, having worked in the Muggles Parliament. I'm just going to ride right over this. Um, the <laughs> you answer- should. You have to. It's the only thing you can do with it. The answer to your question is none. There is no positive effect whatsoever that I perceived uh, involved in filling in sort of, you know, self-generated, automated email submissions. In every office I ever went, I ever worked in or had anything to do with, they went straight in the spam folder. That nobody read them, nobody responded to them, nobody cared. That, you know, the idea that you measure constituency uh, temperature on a on the sensitive particular subject by how many people you know, we're able to click twice successfully and may or may not even be your constituents uh, in the first place that these these are treated with the contempt they deserve. My experience of them has been that the the kind of promotion of um, these these sort of two-click campaigns is they're there to harvest the emails of the people who are signing up. 
that that's, that's, that's principle... its real function is this is a question of, you know, how can we bolster our mailing list? So, you know, send your, send your congressman an email, click twice here and we get your email address sucker. Yeah. Um, that has been my experience and to know absolutely no impact in, in the actual office of legislators. There was a, an organization I assume is probably still in business that was doing this for a wealth of campaigns when I worked in parliament called 38 degrees, I think it was. And I mean, every MP I know, had had their their office email set to strain out anything that came from 38 degrees it was just like we did you know this is this is of no value this is white noise no one cares um that's not to say that writing to your legislator doesn't have impact or value or can i mean if you get most i I would assume the same as over here as it was over there uh, most legislators have a have a policy of responding to constituents who write in Right, right, um, sure, yeah. And so if you're writing an original email from your own email address that is you've written yourself and is not clearly a template or, you know, even written actual letter in by handwriter, that tends to, you know, get at least acknowledged and recognized and a tidal wave of individual people taking the time to actually write something themselves can be noticed. Certainly calling up and jamming the phone lines of your legislator's office will get their attention. They may not Thank you for it, but they, you but know, even if, if it gets their attention, I mean, the interesting thing is, even if it gets their attention, as a practical matter on so many of these issues, unless your legislator is in party leadership, then there is a way in which they work for the people, but there is also a way in which they work for the party, and breaking from the party is so unbelievably unusual that, I mean... Even that, it strikes yeah, me that it's not about that. It, it's not about getting them to break from the party in a particular vote. It's about raising the cost of doing business. Hmm. Um, if, if for example, uh, there are fifty Democrat members of Congress, I'm, I'm making these figures up. I don't have um, good yeah, enough yeah. inside knowledge to know the statistics of the Democratic Party and their congressional caucus. To you know, so I'm making this up. This is a hypothetical. But let's assume for the sake of where there are 50 Democrat congressmen from states that are not named Manhattan or Los Angeles. You know, mm-hmm. that are actually from states that encompass the whole of the state. They have constituencies that are not purely urban, coastal, hyper progressive, whatever. That they actually have a mixed bag of voters in there. That they may only hold their seat by, you know plus 4% or less, you know, swing swing constituencies, you might say. Right. Um, so let's say there's 50 of them. Mm-hmm. If they know that every time the party leadership says, well, we're going to try and, you know, we're going to pass a quote-unquote performative bill um, on maximum abortion access, and those 50 know that they're going to have the phone lines to their congressional office and their local offices jammed for a week of people calling in to complain, and they know that's going to you know, upset a bunch of people in their own backyard. It may not cost them their seat to vote for it, but they know yeah. it's going to be a pain in their butt for no real political gain because, as you said, this bill is not going to pass. This is performative. This is playing to a, a very small section of their own gallery and doing this in the first place. Um then that is going to feed up to party leadership and say, you know, stop doing this nonsense. You know, this isn't worth it for us. You may think that this is, you know, whoever it is you think that this is pleasing to show that we're willing to just sort of, you know, stand up and go through this pantomime every couple of years. You know, this actually makes my life a pain. This makes it hard for me to do my actual job for two weeks on end while you do this. So could we just, you know, cut the games out a little bit? That is a real thing. That does happen. Um, or at least I've seen it happen in other contexts. So I... I'm not completely skeptical of that sort of thing. Um, but I do think your point about why would Catholics possibly feel inspired to to do on their own what their bishops are not leading them to do is a reasonable question. I mean, of course, it is the primary, it is primarily the vocation of the laity to shape and inform 
the civil sphere with their own faith, that this is the mission of the laity, that they are Mm -hmm. to imbrew the temporal order with the spirit of the gospel through their own actions. So, I mean, in a sense, it's the laity should be forward on things like this. But, I mean, it's perfectly fair to say that, you know, if the bishops' conference can't speak with one voice on these things, it's, it's a bit of a reach to ask all the Catholics in the country to. And I would say that if you are a Catholic living in a diocese whose bishop has demonstrated um, a studied ambivalence or or even open equivocation on the subject of legal abortion, then you might be feeling um, like Congress isn't really the problem here. Well, you might be feeling like it would be perhaps more effective or at least more satisfying to um, rather than sending a letter to your congressperson who who – uh, you know, in some ways is a, a step removed from that, from that issue. It, it, it might be that there are Catholics who are thinking, well, why don't I just write to the, to the bishop? Um, the, the, the issue of writing to the bishop is interesting because there is um, considerably more sort of divergency among, di- among dioceses about sort of what happens when you write to your bishop. I mean, there are people, there are bishops who have the policy of responding to everyone who writes to them. There are bishops who have, you know, sort of correspondence uh, help, even who have the who have the policy of being organized enough to, like, in a real way, write a, you know, not have seven canned responses, but to have actual responses to people who write to them and be willing to sort of write back and forth. Although I think that's that's few and far between. And then I think there are dioceses where writing to your bishop yields sort of nothing. Um, and especially, I mean, I think you know, it's it's easy. I think it can be easy when people write in and the, to to a, a chancery and they're really, 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 really mad. Um, and what they write evidence is that it, it's true, I think, probably in any number of kind of contexts, but it's true in a chance or two of people write in, and they're really, really, really mad. And so they're just sort of spouting off to be like, well, this person is just an angry person. They're not going to listen. They're not, you know, they're not being reasonable. They're not spouting off. And therefore, not to take into consideration sort of what it is that they were trying to drive at. Which in Parliament, is, we call those green ink letters. Sure, because, because they're... people of the disposition and temperament of which people in leadership positions tend to dismiss out of hand because they are known to be nuisance actors and not always well engaged with reality in the course of making their arguments, uh, have a disproportionate tendency to write their letters in green ink. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I had no idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a particular parliamentary thing, but yeah, it was to refer to green ink letters was, you know, the the more consistently unhinged and serial correspondence to every MP's office were known as the, as the green ink correspondence. I have been sort of on the record in the past as sort of saying that things like petitions to the bishop are usually both ineffective and don't strike me as um, being a real sort of expressions of ecclesial communion to sort of regard the bishop as sort of an analogous figure to a legislator and to think that we're going to engage with him democratically in the same way. But I do actually think that precisely because of ecclesial communion, because the bishop is to be, you know, the father of the diocese, the pastor of the diocese, and, you know, because it's articulated in canon law, like articulating a concern to a bishop, you know, dear bishop, I don't think that, you know, I, I see that some bishops are speaking out about this and this seems to be why and some bishops aren't. If that's a concern, Concern on any number of issues is, in fact, in some ways, an expression of the identity of the church. Like, um, because we have this communion, and I have the dignity of being baptized, and we are this is not a democracy, but you know, the people of God. All the more so that if the Lord has given me some perspective on something, it's a, it's appropriate to, to to offer to you and, and to be received. I mean, I, I do think that because of the communion of the church, sort of. Um, I, I realize maybe this is um, effectively what I'm saying is a, a very sort of Pope Francis thing to say, but I'm working my way into it backwards, I suppose, which is um, in ecclesiology in which there is ongoing um, exchange of views um, and receptivity to that exchange of views between people in higher positions of hierarchical leadership and people who are not in positions of hierarchical leadership, I think um, tends towards a healthy 
ecclesiastical environment and as an expression, I think, of really the, the theological identity of the church. But I think it's important to think about how, how what is the expression of that which is distinct from what one would more sort of readily do with his legislator, which is like, do this lawmaker because we voted you here and, and we're going to vote you out if you don't do what we want, right? Right. It, it's I, different I, from I was that. going to say there's a – it is never correct or reasonable or – um, reflective of an authentic ecclesiology to address the bishop in the same way that one would address a democratically elected legislator. That is that is certainly for sure. I I don't know that it's necessarily um, foreign to the Christian experience or spirit to to circulate petitions to the bishop. I mean, it depends on how the petition is phrased. But I would say petitioning one's uh, you know depending on which metaphor for the church you want to use petitioning one's father petitioning um you know one's i mean the bishops are governance figures they are legislators they are executives they are judges in their own diocese um i, I think petitions in that sense are important and i would hope bishops who receive petitions with a sizable percentage of their flock having signed them um would would merit their attention and reflection not necessarily their you know a petition sort of, strikes me i suppose i should kind of clear a petition strikes me as an expression of demands I was going to say if the petition includes the word you X Y or Z and yeah. I was going to say if if the petition includes the 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 word couplet you must, mm-hmm. um, then yeah that's wrong and you should just throw that out. Um, but no, I, I think uh, the sort of spontaneous and uh, crowdsourced expression of concerns <laughs> by by the faithful to the bishop is not always a bad thing. I mean, again, there's, it's a question of what's what's the content and how is it phrased. Well, and uh, especially when it's an when it's an invitation to to further conversation dear bishop the, i was what, about to say you could just say dialogue did you? no i was not i i chose not to say dialogue because again i'm not trying i'm trying to i, I don't i don't want to say that especially when it's an invitation are you to, trying to backdoor this into a synod is that no, what's I'm going on i'm not trying here? to backdoor it into a synod but i see that it's happening uh, especially when it, it is an invitation to further conversation dear bishop we the undersigned do not understand this administrative decision or do not understand your public position on x y or z um and it seems to us that the teaching of the church X, Y, and Z, or it seems to us a prudent decision of governance, A, B, and C, and, you know, we we would want to understand your decisions in leadership and understand your positions on them, I think is a reasonable and, and wholly appropriate, like, um, way of engaging. And, and I do think, you know, that, um, and I think it's not just me, I think, like, um, uh, probably uh, St. Gregory the Great thinks this, too, that a bishop does have an obligation to account for, you know, not that he is electorally accountable. If we don't like what you do, we're going to throw you out, but that he is accountable in the sense of being in a Christian communion to account for decisions. And the, the law says that, right? If you make a decree, you have to include summarily the reasons for it, right? Because people have a right to understand how they're being governed and how their their the, their leaders are making decisions. And that's true in the church too, for, for I think really serious reasons that that go to the heart of what it is to be in a Christian community. So I do think account for this, we don't understand this and account for this, and we object to this even and account for this is, is totally reasonable. Where you go from that to, um, we demand, um, you pernicious evildoer, that you do exactly what we say, that's where I think we've gone, we've allowed um, a, a certain vision of, of being part of a democratic polity to um, overcome what it is to be part of a Christian polity. Sure. And yeah, I, I would put, um, I would put a petition that in that demands a bishop, for example, impose some measure of ecclesiastical discipline on an individual Catholic. So, for example, we demand you, bishop, deny this politician communion. Um, I would put them in exactly the same bucket 
uh, as the people who we demand you, Bishop, ordain this woman. Um, I would put them both in a bucket and label them green ink because that's just not how it works. Now, arguably, uh, there's a there's a distinction in kind between the two subjects being addressed, but the means by which you are addressing them and the presumption that the bishop has to respond to demands from the people uh, are not. I, I would not argue uh, is is good in either sense. And, and and even but and even and even asking. In fact, this is a part of sort of the church's um, legal tradition and operational tradition. Asking the bishop to, um, you know, in, in an aggregate, as a as a group, as a body, a, a moral person, asking a bishop to reconsider a decision is, in fact, the first step to making an appeal against that decision. A so required if it's, first if it's step. Not, I mean, it's one thing to write and say, dear bishop, we don't understand why you're not speaking out about this bill, and other bishops are, and we think you should. You know, I think that's wholly appropriate. And dear bishop, we think you should explain yourselves to us. I, I think that's wholly appropriate and fine. But dear bishop, we're... Requesting that you reconsider this administrative decision um, is a necessary um, step towards making an appeal of a bishop's sort of administrative decision, which is a, a completely ordinary, you know, designed to be an ordinary and appropriate part of the church's life. Yeah, no, and absolutely. that actually is not that actually is is not where I was headed, but um, but it brings up something else that we have been covering this week because we've been covering this week. Um, this uh, this situation in this in this Canadian archdiocese. The oh, arch- I'm so happy! <laughs> do you like? How I was I did that? no because I was just about to like. Hey, I bet you I could work in a transition here to talk about Moncton. <laughs> no, but I and mean, then you, you did about, it. I was like, that's great. We, yeah, we I mean, because we're, like, we're this talking is- about. Okay, so what do you do if you're a cat? Uh, effectively, what we're talking about in certain ways. What do you do if you're a Catholic and you and you disagree with either the omission or the commission of your bishop? Disagreeing with the omission of your bishop is harder because you can't make an appeal against a, an omission, a, a negative. But d- disagreeing with a— Well, you can't—I'm sorry. The legal pedant in me has to require If he that. is obliged to do something and he doesn't do it, you can, you know, ask that he do it. But, you know, just the, that the bishop didn't speak out about X, Y, or Z is not something you can appeal. No, but uh, again, in an administrative recourse, um, if you ask the bishop to do something and he doesn't respond— Yes. Then after a certain period of time, mm-hmm. the lack of response is a presumed negative response. It's a presumed negative, right, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying in the process. I'm not saying sort of a procedural omission. I'm saying um, – Which is an often misunderstood and indeed reversed uh, canonical principle yeah. widely is that people say silence presumes consent. This is not true. No, and not the not law. The law actually presumes yeah. the exact opposite. Yeah, silence presumes negation, except actually here's an interesting exception to that. We're never going to get to Moncton. An interesting exception to that is, um, is the norms on a process – that you might call, I don't like it, the term, but um, that people sometimes refer to as automatic incarnation, or you might call sort of ipso yes, incarnation. Yes, yes. So every priest or deacon in, in the church must be incarnated, which is to say belong to um, some institution, either a religious order or a diocese. And most, I think, clerics belong to religion, belong to dioceses, but um, uh, some belong to religious institutes. At any rate, um, that belonging is called incarnation, which literally means hinged to. And uh, there's, there are various ways in which one can switch the diocese of his incarnation. I belong to this diocese, but for various reasons, I want to belong to that diocese instead. There, there are various ways in which that can happen. Uh, the most common is a sort of act of incarnation where the bishop from which you come excarnates you um, at the same time that the bishop to which you're going incarnates you. And so there's a, there are these decrees. But there's this other weird way that it can happen in the law where if you are legitimately resident in a diocese um, for a period of five years and you have written to the bishop... To, to both bishops and told them that it is your intention to be incarnated in the diocese in which you are resident, in which you are not incarnated. If the five years go by and they don't say no, what happens, Ed? Uh, you are incarnated by the law itself. You are incarnated by the law itself. So there's a place where the silence 
functionally is equivalent to consent. That is true. The, mm-hmm. But that is because um, for, as you say, it's in a very narrow thing but where what is, what is, what the positive action here would be is to object. Yes, this, okay. Yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. it's less a sort of silence presumes consent is there being no objections. <laughs> no objections having been heard. Yeah, I suppose yeah. that's true. Okay. So, um, but still that very process by which something can happen without the active consent, yes. the, the absence of objection can constitute in that situation um, the positive act of consent, which I think drives up what I'm getting at. Anyway, that's yes. if you live in the Archdiocese of Moncton, where the bishop has this week doubled down on a policy that requires people to be doubly vaccinated to go to mass if they're over 12 years old, and you disagree with that policy, um, or you think that it's not canonically appropriate, that would be a place where you might, uh, according to these processes that we're talking about, Moncton is an archdiocese in the province of New Brunswick, Canada, a French-speaking archdiocese, and other New Brunswick dioceses have not established this policy, although the diocese, archdiocese of Moncton is doing so in order to help the public health department achieve its goal of 90% vaccination rate at public gatherings. If you objected to that policy of being required to be vaccinated in order to attend mass um, in the archdiocese, then you might ask the bishop to uh, reconsider in a formal way, either as an aggregate or as an individual. And um, having not heard from him, then you, or having heard that he will not reconsider, then you might make a recourse, uh, an appeal to the Congregation for Divine Worship and Sacraments um, at the Holy See. And the canon lawyers who I've spoken with um, you and I, of course, are canon lawyers, but I try and take the temperature of other canon lawyers. The canon lawyers who I've spoken with have all said that it would be their expectation that the Congregation for Divine Worship and Sacraments would almost certainly require that the Archbishop of Moncton make some accommodation for people who are not vaccinated to be able to attend Mass. Yes, I would just, uh, I would add, um, if, you're, if, you're, if you're living in the Archdiocese of Moncton and you, and you wish to lodge an appeal, I would encourage you to do so as an individual. That yeah, that things, aggregate of persons makes things complicated. It makes things very complicated, and eventually when it gets to the apostolic signature, which it almost inevitably does, because whenever the congregation, whenever a Roman congregation, be it the Congregation for Clergy, the Congregation for Bishops, the Congregation for Divine Worship, uh, makes a decision which the local bishop doesn't like, it's always going to be appealed. It's always going to go to the apostolic signature, and they are very, very hard on standing. And basically, they recognize juridic persons. Yeah. So if you are the concerned parishioners of... St. Carpathian, um, whatever, they're going to say, that's not a legitimate group. We don't recognize yeah. you as a juridic person. But so you don't do it as I, a Catholic. Yes. I, I, right. Yeah. I, I don't know. Pierre, a Catholic. I was about to say Pierre, Pierre Le Pew, um, <laughs> of the, of the parish of St. Carpathian in the diocese, in the Archdiocese of Moncton. They would say, ah, you are a juridic person. We recognize you. Fair enough. So, yeah. Ed, I have, uh, I have a moment or two, so I think it is time to wrap up the podcast, unless... Well, we could play a quick game, I suppose. I feel okay. if it's, it's my a quick week. one. It is it your is. week for a game, and if it's a quick one, we can play. All right, Judy, um, I just thought since we finished on the Archdiocese of Moncton in the province of New Brunswick, we could just do a quick round of Canadian yes or no, because let's face it, Canada's Canadian pretty... yes or no? That sounds great. Yes. I, I would say yeah. on the whole, maybe. Eh? <laughs> No, that's not an acceptable answer. Um, so I have some things that are Canadian here that I've been jotting down as we've been talking um, that I think of when I think of Canada. And uh, you can just give me a yes or no. Where are you on, on these Canadian things? Okay. Uh, Sounds great. Let's do it. All right. Moosehead beer. Yes. Smart. The Montreal Expos. Yes. I would also agree. Tim Hortons. Uh, no. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Mounties, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, JD. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. 
I have, a, do I have a funny Mountie. I have a couple of funny Mountie stories that I'll tell you sometime. Okay. Um, I, I went to Canada once. In fact, it was for a World Youth I, Day. You know, I have a funny Mountie story, too. I think everyone who went to World Youth Day in Toronto has a funny Mountie. I mean, that's what Mounties are there for, right? They're not law enforcement. They're there for tourists to mess with. Right? Yeah. My, mine actually is from a different thing, and uh, it's a long and convoluted story uh, that I'll tell another time. Oh, well, Suffice I will tell to mine. Say I was because detained at the Canadian border for quite some time. Really? The Mounties? Yeah. The, you got busted by the Mounties? Well, we got busted, I suppose, by the Border Patrol, but then we were asked questions by the Mounties. Again, it's a story for another time. Were they very apologetic about asking no, these questions? They can apologize no, they for were wasting your time. Rather we're really sorry about this. No, they were more. Uh, they were definitively more deliberate, deliberative than that. You didn't say, I'm an American citizen and I, I did. This was part of the problem. Ah, <laughs> ugly Americans. You guys can't be let out anywhere. No, I, when, I went, when we went to uh, World Youth Day in Toronto, I, I remember crossing over. We flew from London to the United States and sort of did a mini pilgrimage up mm-hmm. through the East Coast and crossed over at Niagara Falls. And there was a, a bar there. And me being me, I was excited to see the bar. Um, and so I went into the bar. And uh, I, as you do... Um, at least as you did back then in the good old days, I, I lit a cigarette as they served me my beer and they freaked out and forced me to you know, yeah, go outside in the beer garden. Yeah. So I stood out in the beer garden and said, well, you actually can't smoke in the beer garden either. You have to take it out on the sidewalk. I went, fine. And there was a little sort of, you know, two foot high fence dividing the beer garden from the sidewalk. And so I stepped over that with my beer and a Mountie came along and said, well, you, you can't drink on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I looked at him in the eye and I put one leg over the fence with my beer in that hand so that it was in the beer garden. The other half and the other leg with the cigarette was in the sidewalk side so I could leave my head one side of the divide or other as sure. I chose. And I said, well, what do you make of that, officer? And he said, well, I don't know. No one's ever done that before. <laughs> and that was that was my experience of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Anyway, moving swiftly on, J.D., away from Mounties. Alanis Morissette. Yeah. Really? Yes. I mean, yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I like Alanis right. Morissette's music. Nah. I'm not that was more enthusiastic than I meant for it to be, but yeah, I like Alanis Morissette's music. <laughs> Strong preference for Alanis Morissette. Okay. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. No. Yeah, that is correct. There's it seems only... to me that the Toronto Maple Leafs are the, are, the, are the Protestant team and the Montreal Canadiens are the Catholic team. And I really have a, a soft spot um, for the Quebec Nordiques, not just because they're now the Colorado Avalanche, but just because the Nordiques were awesome. And the whole That's... WHA was awesome, weren't they? I've, I've always had a slight soft spot for the Edmonton Oilers. I don't know why. I have no real... I think it's because I get the impression that Edmonton is kind of a doesn't get a lot of respect from other Canadian cities. Probably true. Um, so I, I have a sort of blue collar solidarity with them. Uh, okay, the Canadian National Tower, JD. I don't know what that is. It is a tower in, I believe, the city of Toronto. Oh, which it used to be called something else, the RBC Tower, something like that. Possibly, maybe it's called something else now. Uh, no, because I, I no, my answer to that is no. Right. Okay. Um, cheese curds on fries. Yeah. Really? Yeah, poutine? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Great Canadian Seal Hunt? Yes. Yep. Yeah. We don't need to unpack it, but yeah. Um, bagged milk? No. No. And finally, Brett the Hitman Hart? Yeah. No! No! Yeah! No, no, you're crazy. You're crazy. No. You are crazy. He was in himself obnoxious. And the Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor and Chief JD, the Heart Foundation, Flynn. And I am joined by my podcasting partner, Ed. Oh, um, I'm 
trying to think of a of, of a Breath of Hitman Heart era villain that I can uh, that I you know that I can put on you uh, like Ed I Razor was, Ramon. Condon. I was a big Razor Ramon fan. I yeah, like Shawn Michaels. Cool, just, actually, yeah, Shawn Michaels. You know who kind of? <laughs> but you know what my favorite thing is? Owen Hart was by far the superior Hart brother. May he rest in peace. He had a better attitude and he was better in the ring. We'll see you guys next week.